All right, so it's good to catch up with Mr. Barnes. He is uh, uh, Mike and Jane Barnes' son. They're walking out the door now since they were at the first service. All right, wow, got bright in here. I can see you all now. How's everyone today? I hope you had a great Resurrection Sunday and great Resurrection Week. Um, Last week, we started a series called Heaven, Hell, and the End. And uh, I spoke on heaven last week, so you know what I'm going to talk about this week? Hell. I'm going to talk about hell this week. And um, it's an interesting topic. I had never spoken on it before, so I'm very appreciative that I had the time to do some research and and study and prepare today. And um, boy, I'm thankful that that's a place I'm not going. Um, Hell's interesting. It's an interesting topic because, uh, interestingly enough, many people... Many people uh, in our culture view hell as a joke. They, they view hell as sort of this uh, fantasy place. And, and actually, you'll even hear people say things like, you know, I'm going to hell and me and my, me and my friends are going to have a party there and it's going to be like no other, you know. And I, I mean, it's, it's taken very lightly in, in our culture today in, in many ways. Um, for some, they, they say it's an antiquated, unproven theory uh, that is held by religious people. Hell, that is. Um, you know, it's not proven. It's not real. That's, oh, that's old stuff. We don't, we don't need to talk about that. But honestly, you're going to hear from me today. I believe hell is a very real place. In fact, so did Jesus. Um, Jesus talked about hell an awful lot. Uh, in fact, he talked about it so much. Every time, uh, for every one time, the Bible mentions this place called heaven, which I talked about last week. Hell, punishment, and judgment is mentioned 10 times. So about 10 times the the number of references and mentions uh, that heaven has, hell has, okay? So it's talked about a lot. And um, I want to talk to you today because um, Jesus talked about it so much that about half of his parables, about half of his parables in some way, shape, or form, he alludes to this place called hell. He, he talks about, you know, the punishment, the judgment, or hell itself. Read them. Uh, uh, it's easy to overlook this fact, but Jesus, the most loving person who ever walked the face of the planet, the most loving, uh, perfect representation of God the Father, uh, found it very, very significant in his teachings to include this topic. Why? I believe because he didn't want anyone to go there. I believe that he emphatically taught it, enthusiastically taught it, and was very clear about that teaching because he wanted every person possible to avoid going to that place. I understand it's a heavy topic. You know, I understand that it doesn't, many, many times for many of us, it doesn't bring joy to our heart, but it is, it is scriptural. It's, it's a biblical uh, topic. And so in my preparation, honestly, I didn't want to talk about this topic. Um, but through the process, God began to change my heart to say, I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this because far too many people, I shared a statistic last week that, uh, in a survey, people, uh, for every one person that thought or mentioned, um, that had been surveyed that they were going to hell, there were 120 people that thought they were going to heaven. 
So in, in most people's minds, uh, they think, I'm heaven bound, you know, oh, it's just hell is reserved for the bad people, um, you know, the people that, you know, the murderers, the, the, the people that are vile, the scum of society, but I'm going to heaven. And, and so it's easy to say, look in the mirror and say, I'm going to heaven, but that person over there, and don't be elbowing your neighbors, don't be... Don't be hitting people. But, but here's the deal. A, a lot of people think that there's this huge open door access to heaven, which there is through Jesus Christ and no other way. And, and there's this small, narrow door uh, to hell. And actually, it's just the opposite. Jesus says, narrow is the road. And, 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 and small is the way that leads to life. But wide is the road. And, and, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So in our culture and in our mindsets, we've got it backwards. We think it's easy to go to heaven and hard to go to hell. And Jesus is saying it's just the opposite. So I feel like it's very important for us to talk about this topic today. Um, I do it in humility, but also from the perspective that it's a warning. It's a warning. And I know that every time I open my mouth, every time I stand on the stage, I am speaking to someone that is going there. And my goal and my, my, my purpose, my desire is to change the path that they're on, to change the, the, path, the path that they're on. So um, Jesus, like I mentioned, he, he taught about hell in so many different ways in the parables. And I just want to just allude to a few of them. One of them was the wheat and the tares. You may have read the story. Um, this parable of the wheat and the tares uh, was talking about a farmer who, who sowed seed and was waiting for it to begin to uh, bring a harvest. And, and the Bible says that his enemy sowed bad seed in there, seeds that were full of, of, of weeds or seeds that would yield weeds. And, and uh, this owner of the field was asked, what should we do? And he said, well, let's wait. Let the, let's let them both grow up together. But ultimately, we'll, we'll, uh, when they're fully grown and it's harvest time, we'll harvest the wheat and put it in a barn and we'll take the weeds and we'll burn them. And the story ends like this. That sounds in- innocent enough. But with these stories, Jesus began to say things like this. This is how it will be at the end of the age. This is how it will be at the end of the age. He, said another, he, he shared another parable about um, the kingdom of heaven and he said, it's like a great net, which is dipped into the water, cast into the water. And as it was drawn in, it captured all kinds of fish. Some were good fish and some were not so good fish. And this again is an innocent sounding story as he's teaching the kingdom of heaven. But, but what, is, what he goes on to say is the good fish were separated and kept and the bad fish were thrown away, cast outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he goes on to say, this is how it will be at the end of the age. You see, we don't like to think about hell. I don't like to think about hell. But the reality is that some of us will go there unless we get off the path that we're currently on. I say this with uh, utter humility and love. I don't want anyone to go there. I'm going to do my best to convince you that you can change your path today, that you can make a choice. I can only teach you the truth. I can't make a decision for you as much as I wish I could. I can only teach you the truth. 
Um, Jesus was convinced that, that even though uh, he preached his heart out, that he represented God, that he was the epitome of love, that no matter what, there would be people in his audience that ultimately would not hear the message or receive the message. And he gave this parable of a sower and seed. And he said, there's a sower that casts seed out and some fell along the rocky places and some fell on good soil. And, 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 uh, but the, the bottom line of that parable is this, three-fourths of the people, three out of every four of the people that heard the message that he preached did not ultimately bear the kind of fruit that he wants. That is not a good percentage. That's not a good percentage. So, so ultimately, here's this message of the gospel. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. And yet 75% of the people do not ultimately uh, benefit from that good news in, the, in that parable, that specific parable. So Jesus, Jesus understood that even in his preaching, that uh, and even in his ministry and even in, in his presence on the earth, that the results aren't always going to be everyone's going to heaven. He understood that. But he did everything he could to preach the kind of message and to live the kind of life that would change people's destinies from ultimately heading toward hell and going to heaven. So this is what Jesus taught. Now, so I'm on this topic of hell. What will hell be like? What what do you think hell will be like? Uh, There's an amazing parable in Luke chapter 16 that I want to share with you today. In this parable, Jesus pulled back the veil. He he pulled back the veil and he he began to show um, the, the, the difference between life on this earth or life in this world and the life in the next world. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. I have a lot of verses here for you. Just bear with me. Um, Luke chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 19. It says this. Luke 16, verse 19. Please understand, I'm preaching on hell because I don't want you to go there. And today you, you can make a choice to not. Amen? Luke 16, 19, it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. And he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Pretty grotesque uh, description of the scene here. Verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades... Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been set in place uh, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. 
It's described as a place of torment. He's in agony. He's in f- on fire. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone, goes, someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So here's Jesus portraying this, this picture uh, of these two men and the afterlife. Okay, He described their life briefly on earth, and then he begins to describe their experience after their lives ended. Um, very powerful. And, and there's, these two people are, are contrasted in, in many ways throughout this whole parable. And Jesus' teaching was predominantly or primarily focused on the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had mindsets that Jesus was trying to undo. He was trying to correct their, their thinking because their thinking was twisted. It was not in line with God's heart or God's purposes. And, and so um, the, previous, the previous parable was about uh, the parable of the shrewd manager. And here's this guy that was, that was, it was about his money and how he dealt with his money and, and the best way to use money for godly, for, uh, for godly purposes and godly use. Well, on that topic, the Pharisees had this mindset in that day that if you were a rich person, you were blessed of God. You had God's favor on your life. Um, God's blessing was on your life. You're doing things right. If you're rich and healthy and wealthy, things are going good for you, not only in a natural sense, but that's a reflection of God's favor. Conversely, if you're a poor person, if you're unhealthy, if you're sick, and you could even look at Job, the, the mindset continued for many, many centuries um, if you're sick, if you're poor, uh, that means that, that there's a curse on your life, that God's not pleased with you, that there's not favor upon your life. So here's Jesus speaking to these people, and he's trying to show them. In fact, the parable totally messes up their whole mindset. A rich man, um, this guy was really rich. In fact, um, in this parable, it begins to describe the way this guy was rich. He dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Uh, the, the luxury uh, can also be translated in the Greek as uh, he, was, he was able to have large feasts every day. I mean, there was an abundance of food. He, he'd have parties and feasts and things like that. Uh, living in luxury, he, wearing purple. Purple was like a, a sign of, of royalty and wealth. In fact, the dye to make your clothes purple in that day was very, very expensive. It wasn't just symbolic because it was a color. It was an expensive color of dye because they had to take these special small seashells and grind them up. And you needed masses, massive amounts uh, of these seashells ground up to generate this, this purple dye to put in your clothes. It really doesn't, we, we can't correlate or relate too well today to a specific color, but, but in that day, it had a lot of meaning. So, so this guy was rich. It introduces, Jesus introduces the rich man, and now on the other side, he re- introduces this guy named Lazarus. He is the only guy ever in any of Jesus' parable that ha- had a name, signifying importance to Jesus, which again would blow the mind of the Pharisees because in their mind, the rich man was important. You know what I mean? This guy, Lazarus, he, he was clearly, uh, he clearly had some physical problems. Not only was he poor, but he had sores, open sores that dogs would lick. Uh, 
And the fact that he was brought to the gate to me says that he had some type of handicap. Maybe he was paralyzed, uh, blind. We don't, we don't know what was wrong with him. But the fact that he was laid at a gate uh, leads me to believe that there was some significant physical problems with this guy. So here's a guy that's not healthy. He's not wealthy. In their minds, the Pharisees, he did not have the favor of God on, their, on his life. And, and um, so, so this is Lazarus. He introduces in one sentence, one verse, the rich man, in one sentence, in one verse, Lazarus, and begins to describe their lives. Then uh, he, he moves on to say this. The beggar died and was carried off by angels into Abraham's side, which, which is uh, a, a place symbolic of uh, where, where righteous people would go before Jesus came and lived the perfect life and sacrificed his life and died and was resurrected. Many scholars believe that he emptied this Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom out um, as he was going to heaven or while, after he was resurrected. Because he had shed his blood, these people who lived a righteous life could be forgiven, and now they could leave that place and go to heaven. That's what a lot of scholars believe. Okay, so, so this guy Lazarus is now next to Abraham. It had to be a cool place. It had to be a much better place. Here he is. He's not sick anymore. He's not poor anymore. He's not hungry anymore. He's blessed. Okay, so now he's at Abraham's side. Uh, he's in a good place, this guy uh, named Lazarus. He's in a good place. Life is good for him. And it says about this other guy, it says the rich man also died and was buried. It didn't say the angels carried him off. It, it didn't say anything about a funeral. But let me tell you something. As a rich man, he probably had a, a huge fun- funeral. And he probably had speaker after speaker saying, oh, this guy was a great guy. Surely he's in heaven. Um, you know, he was a blessing to our community. We'll miss him. And it was, it was probably an elaborate ceremony. Um, but here's the deal. Jesus didn't say this about him. Literally, the next words about this rich man was, in Hades, where he was in torment. That's an abrupt change from this, this guy who's celebrated and honored and respected in his community to in Hades, he was there in torment. Now, Hades was the place that it was sort of like the holding place for people, and it still is uh, the holding place for people before the great white throne judgment where they're ultimately cast into the lake of fire. It's sort of like um, right now, if you were to go out and commit a crime, you'd go to a holding place called the Onondaga County Justice Center. But ultimately, you'd go to jail. See, the Justice Center is a holding place before you go and are sentenced in prison. Does that make sense? So that's what Hades was and is until the great white throne judgment. So, so here's this guy. He's, he's in torment in Hades. Now, interestingly enough, the Bible says that he was able to see. He looked up and he was able to see someone that he knew. On this other side, he saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus, probably the guy that he walked over, ignored, was tired. Why do you have to lie at my gate every day? You smell, you know, I don't want you here. And Lazarus' dream was that he could just get some of the food that this guy uh, would fall off this guy's table because he, he lived elaborately, right? And so now, all of a sudden, the tables are turned. Keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. 
blowing their minds with, with, this is the way it really is in the kingdom of heaven. They had their perspective on heaven. Jesus was trying to reteach or help them rethink their perspective on heaven and on hell. So um, the tables are turned. Now this guy Lazarus is, is in such, excuse me, the rich man is in such torment that he wants, he's begging Abraham, could you get Abraham to dip his finger in water and drop it on my tongue to relieve some of the anguish and pain that I'm going through? I mean, one drop on something that's burning is probably not going to make a big difference. But he's saying anything. I'm in agony. I'm in torment. That word torment is used four times in this short passage. Four times torment is, is mentioned in this guy's life. I just want something to bring relief to me, he's saying. I I need some relief in my life. It says this, it it, uh, it says this, but Abraham said, remember that in your life you, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. I wanna just say to you this, it's, it's easy to surmise from those words that because he was rich, he went to hell, and because Lazarus was poor, he went to heaven. That's not the, the message that's being sent. Rich people can go to heaven and poor people can go to hell, okay? Uh, the message that, be, that is being sent is this. Uh, you have focused on your life here on earth, rich man, whereas Lazarus focused his, uh, on his life, uh, his eternal life. Lazarus made, made a choice, a decision related to his life after his time on earth, and you didn't. Or actually, you did, but it wasn't the right decision. Okay? So, so that is how Jesus began to talk about heaven and hell. This is how Jesus began to paint a picture to the people of his day that hell is not a place you want to go to. In fact, in Matthew, starting in Matthew from 3 to 28, Matthew's chapter Chapters 3 to 28, every single chapter, to my knowledge, has some reference to this place that you don't want to go. Jesus spoke often about it. He spoke emphatically about it, and he spoke clearly about it because he wanted people to understand, I am here to give you a warning. I'm here to make a way for you to have eternal life with God in heaven, but you have to, ha- you have to make, ultimately, this choice. So this is the way Jesus began to talk about heaven. Now, I just want to touch base on a few theological topics for a moment. Because the Bible says that Lazarus died. He was escorted into this place called Abraham's side. The Bible says that this rich man died, and he was escorted to this place called Hades. And the Bible tells us that it's appointed uh, to man, for mankind, to die once and then face the judgment. So three things will happen to every one of us in this room. And every person that has breath, three things will happen. Ultimately, you're going to die unless Jesus comes first, right? Ultimately, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're going to stand before God in judgment. And this is going to be, to me, the way I understand it, instantaneous. When we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. We're going to stand before God in judgment, and then we will be sent immediately, instantly to one of two places, heaven or hell. And that whole decision is based upon, uh, based upon the fact that we've been forgiven of our sins by Jesus Christ. The Christian will be escorted into heaven because Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God. He, he, Jesus Christ 
um, took our sins upon him, and we've received, the Christian will have received that forgiveness in his or her life. The person who's escorted into hell has rejected the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the kindness of God, to the point where God's wrath will ultimately uh, rest on that person's life. Uh, So I want to describe that to you in in another way. Here's the deal. Hell is Hell is the place or a place of God's wrath. It it is the place of God's wrath. It's the demonstration of God's wrath. Now, you may say, but I understand the the attributes of God. And God is love. The Bible says that God is love. Yes, he is love. But if you really read the Bible, you'll see that the Bible talks more more about God's holiness than it does about God's love. God is love, that's absolutely true, but God is also holy, which means separate from sin, okay? So God is holy, God is love, and there's another attribute uh, that the Bible describes about God some 600 times, and it's called wrath. So unless God's, God's, uh, God's um, holiness is satisfied, then ultimately the person who who has not received Jesus Christ, is on the path of God's wrath. That's not a place that anyone wants to be on. Let me just tell you, it's a place that you don't want to be on. It's a place that you don't want your loved ones on, a path that you don't want your loved ones on. It's a path that you don't want your worst enemies on, the path of God's wrath. So, so God is love. God, he is holy, uh, but he's also love. And he loves so much that he sent Jesus to bear God's wrath for us. See, he took my place and your place so that that sin thing would not have to result in wrath towards me. It was, it was, it was the wrath of God was pointed to Jesus. That's where he bore God's wrath in sin and sickness and disease. And not only those three things, but also in the Bible says that uh, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had to turn away from the sin and wrath that was being poured out on his son. Now that is love. That is love. Amen? That's love. And and so the person who rejects that love ultimately ends up on the path of God's wrath. This man, this man was rich, viewed as, as as a guy who was blessed by God, had God's favor on his life, was good in his community, and yet... What seems to have happened was he was a cultural Jew. He, he lived this religious life as a cultural Jew, like many would in that day. But he was religious and lost. And I, I propose to you today that you can be a cultural Christian in America very easily, and you could be religious and lost. You could come to church every Sunday and still be lost and, and uh, on the path of God's wrath. You can give, you can be good, you can be kind, you can be a model uh, neighbor, a model community member, and still be on the path of God's wrath. Why? Because God's wrath is only satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Your goodness will not get you to the Father. Your kindness will not get you to the Father. There is no other name in heaven by which we are saved. Jesus. We've been deceived into thinking hell is not a real place and everyone goes there. It's a deception. It's a lie of the enemy. There is hope for every person 
in this room. There's hope for you. I'm not bringing a message, hellfire and brimstone, that, that causes you to think you're going to hell and that can't change. No, that can change. There's hope for you. But you have to make the choice to walk in that hope. Now, you may ask the question, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, that is the million-dollar question of the day. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? And here's my short answer. He doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell by rejecting his love. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a passage, an amazing passage in 2 Peter 3.9 that says this. 2 Peter 3.9. It says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Meaning, you know what? Sometimes God's timing doesn't seem ideal for us, but ultimately it is ideal. God is patient, it says. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone. You see his heart? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Listen, God's desire is for you to not be the object or on the path of his wrath, but to receive the forgiveness that he's made a way for you to have. That's God's desire. So how can a loving God send anyone to hell? People have rejected his free offer of love and forgiveness. So God doesn't send people to hell. People reject God's love. And, and, you know, here's the cool thing. Like, God is relentless. Like, he is the pursuer. The Bible says that we can look, we can discover uh, God by looking at the stars and the creation and the beauty, Romans 1 says. We can discover God just by that general revelation of just looking around and saying, wow, there must be a God, looking at God's creation. But it doesn't stop there. See, God is relentless. And if you're here today and running from God, he's running after you. He, he doesn't stop there. He's, he's relentless in his love. So it doesn't stop at general revelation. There's this, com, this thing called common grace where God's goodness is on your life even though you're living a wicked life, even though you're living in, un, in unrighteous ways. God's, God's goodness, the grace. The Bible says the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? He blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. That's called common grace. Even though you're far from him, he's still good to you. Even now, right now. That, that's how good God is. But it doesn't stop at common grace. He, he put a conscience in you to know the difference between right and wrong. How to live for him or to, how to rebel against him. There's something inside of you. His law has been written on your heart, the Bible tells us. So, so there's not, not only a general revelation and a common grace and, and a conscience, but then he has this thing. There's times that he reveals himself to people uh, through personal revelation. It could be a dream. It could be something that happens and you say, wow, you know, God is, God is, it's some discovery you have personally that maybe, maybe uh, customized or tailored just for you that didn't happen to your neighbor or your loved one or your kids or your husband or your wife. It was just for you. That's personal revelation. And then he has his church as carrying the presence of God on the earth. I mean, he is, he is a seeker of people. He, he loves people. He, he wants you to be reached. He wants your loved ones to be reached. And, and he's relentless in that. So, so you haven't answered the question, Jim. What is hell going to be like? You really want to hear it? 
Here it is. I'll just give you a few. Uh, a few. I know you didn't answer yes. Some of you are like, just shut it down so we could go home. But this will be good for you to hear because I think it will help bring clarity to um, this place and even an urgency in your heart so that you don't want people to go there. Actually, before I do that, I want to I say one thing that stood out to me in this parable before we get away from uh, Luke chapter 16. As, as this rich man is dialoguing with Abraham, as he's having conversation with Abraham, some amazing things stand out to me. Um, first, he was, he was interested in getting some personal relief. He was trying to take care of himself, which to me would make a lot of sense. I mean, if you're in that much agony, uh, trying to get some relief somehow. But after that was, was uh, rejected and Abraham's like, there's this chasm between us and you and we can't cross over. That tells me also that, you know, once we breathe our last breath, there's no changing of our eternal destiny. It is set. It is finalized. It's over, right? But this dialogue that he has, he turns from a, a self-focus of getting relief to begin to be focused on his five brothers. And this to me is very powerful, because he becomes the epitome of the ultimate evangelist at this point. And, and he's saying, but can't you send Lazarus? I don't know why he chose Lazarus to dip the water on, uh, on his finger and uh, dip his finger in the water to get some relief on his tongue. And then Lazarus to go to his brothers to tell them, listen, you've got to tell them, you've got to warn them that they can repent. It's not too late. Because obviously he thought that they were on the same path towards God's wrath as he ended up on. Obviously, he thought that they would end up in the same place he was. And this really changes the perspective. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, you go there, I go there, we'll have a party, it's going to be a blast. uh, This rich man did not want his brothers to come there. But he becomes this evangelist. Send Lazarus to my brother's. Send Lazarus to my brothers. Abraham's like, uh, that's not going to happen because you know what? Even if someone died and was resurrected, it's still not going to work. Your brothers aren't going to change their path. Now, to me, this rich man's idea was pretty, I thought it was pretty creative. It was a good idea. I mean, imagine someone who died a month ago that you knew and you knew they died. Maybe you attended their funeral. If they come knocking on your door, is that going to get your attention? God sent me back here to life to tell you you better turn from your ways. Would that get your attention? But Abraham, Abraham had a brilliant counter, uh, counter um, to, to that proposal, and that was this. Even if someone who raised from the dead comes and tells you, that's not going to change their path. And who did that? Jesus. And look at how many people ignore the fact that Jesus rose from the dead presented himself alive, uh, it, it said that, the Bible says that like nearly 500 people or so were wandering around Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead that were formerly dead. I mean, imagine running into someone that was, you know, 400 years, 400 years ago died. And my, my mind just gets blown when I begin to think about this. People coming up out of the grave and you look at their tombstone, it was like 1700. I mean, this is strange. Are you, are you with me at all? I mean, does this make sense? So, so here, Jesus is saying, you know what? Uh, Abraham's saying about Jesus, even when someone raises from the dead, 
it doesn't, it's not necessarily going to make a difference to their ultimate decision. I thought that was cool. So this guy, this rich man is, is an evangelist. In fact, I was convicted to some degree that this guy cares more about lost people than I do. Here's a guy that's dead. He understands eternity. He's experiencing it. And he's like, you got to get to my brothers. I don't know the last time that we prayed like that. You've got to get to them. You've got you've to reach them. They will repent. You've got to warn them. You've got to let them know that this, they don't want to come to this place. I mean, he's in a desperate, desperate position of trying to uh, uh, make a difference in his brother's lives. Paul had something like that. He, he had a passion while he was living. Um, in Romans chapter 9, verses, I think, 2 and 3, we could put it on the screen. He, he had this passion for the Israelites. We need this passion in our lives. I just need to tell you, we need this passion in our lives. Romans chapter 9 says... Verses 2 and 3 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. You hear that? I, I myself were, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. I, I mean, how many would say, I'll go to hell, I'll be cut off from Christ for my city to be saved? I mean, would anyone volunteer? Right? This is, what, this is Paul's heart. It amazes me. This is, this is the rich man. He's like, you've got to do something. I feel like as a people of God that we've lost the urgency. The urgency that hell is real, heaven is real, and we've got to do something to make a difference. So, so here's what hell is like just in the next two or three minutes. Um, we, we saw four times in that passage the word torment used. The word torment. So it's a place of torment because of what is not there. I'm going to describe three things that is not there. Uh, there's no relief. The first one is there's no relief. There's re- relief is not there from the torment, from the agony, from the weeping and the wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's no relief. You can't take a pill to take away the pain. There's no relief whatsoever. Secondly, there's no light. The sun never shines. The sun never rises and sets. There's no windows to look outside. Light is just a memory. Peter calls it this. Peter describes it this way. He calls it chains of darkness, utter darkness. Jesus said this. He calls it outer darkness. Jude said it's blackest darkness. I mean, I don't know, when I was a kid, I used to play hide-and-go-seek in the dark, but there came a point in time where I was not happy to be in the dark, if you know what I mean. Like, we don't celebrate darkness, we celebrate light, right? In Syracuse, we got a lot of darkness, right? Clouds over, when the sun's shining, we're like, man, this is amazing. This place has no light. Why? Because the Bible says God is light. And, and there's the absence of God. Total absence of light in hell is because there's a total absence of God. You are excluded from his presence. You're separated from him. There's no mercy, no chance of forgiveness anymore. 
So there's no relief, there's no light, and there's no love. No one will love you in hell. No one will love you in hell. There'll be no comfort from others. No godly grandmother, no godly mother who's praying for you. No pastor, no Christian friend there. There is no love there. If, you, if your loved ones are in hell, it's not, you're not uh, celebrating and fellowshipping and hanging out. You're not partying, partying. You're crying out the same as this rich man did. Somebody warn them, don't come here. That was his cry. There wasn't a, a, a reunion in hell for this man. So it's a place of torment because of what is not there, but it's also a place of torment because of what is there. The Bible says that there is an unquenchable fire. That means it can't go out. Uh, Lazarus, Lazarus was requested to bring a drop of water for this guy who was burning and in agony. The fire that never dies, it doesn't go out. It's 24-7, and yet somehow, even in the midst of being burned, you're not fully consumed. That is torment and anguish. The cool thing is we don't have to experience it. John Wesley said something like this. Put your finger in the candle. Can you bear it for one minute? How then will you bear having your whole body plunged into a lake of fire burning with brimstone? Not only is unquenchable fire there, but bad company is there. Think about the worst of the worst. Satan and his demons are there. You think they're your friends? I don't think so. But rapists are there. Murderers are there. Uh, The perverse people, history's sickest uh, characters are there. Uh, You want to talk about prison? This prison is called hell. And you know the interesting thing? Here's the last thing that is there, and I'm going to close. Maybe, Jeff, you could come up. In, in all of this, you're conscious. You're conscious. And you have memory. It's not like you burn and consumed and die. And No, you live forever this way. You live forever with consciousness and awareness. It's like a constant nightmare. We remember. We remember those salvation messages. We remember that service that we were at that we could have responded to. We remember our friends and our grandmas and our, the people we know praying for us. We remember that. And we carry the guilt, the shame, uh, the condemnation. Um, we, can't escape, uh, we can't escape the guilt of our sins. It's there forever. Don't go there. Don't go there. This message is not for you because I want you to go there. This message is for you so that you make a choice today. I am not going to go there, and I'm going to make a difference in people's lives not to go there. Does this make sense to you? Can you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. If you're here today and you know right now at this very moment you are on the path of God's wrath, you can easily make a decision to change that just like that. Just like that, you can make a decision to get off one path and get on the other path. It's simple. It's easy. Jesus calls it a gift. It's a gift. It's called the gift of salvation. He came to give it to you. And so your responsibility is to make the decision to take the gift. Most people like gifts, and this is like the best of the best. You know what I mean? If you're not sure today that you have avoided this path of God's wrath, be sure. I want to invite our uh, altar ministry team up, people that would love to pray with you. If you're not sure, I want to invite you to boldly just come up, you know, and, and get some prayer from these people. 
get some prayer from them and say, you know what, I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. I want to be forgiven. I, I want to experience God's grace and goodness on my life. And I want to avoid that nasty place called hell. That's for you. We've got people up here. You're welcome to respond. In just a moment, I'm just going to pray. Um, dismiss the service. But please, I beg you, don't let pride get in your way. Don't let, don't let anything keep you from being with God in heaven, place of joy and hope and love. Don't let anything hold you back. And for you who have already accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, don't leave this place as if you just heard another message and, and your life is never going to change. I mean, you know, Christianity is rather casual in America. And I'm going to ask as I pray that God will put an urgency in your heart for people you love, people you know, people you run into. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, today, Lord, we, we've heard your word. Lord, as best I know how, Lord God, this is what we hear and read about when we read about hell and the eternity that people will spend there, Lord. I don't want one person in this room, God, one, not even one, God, to leave this place on the path of your wrath, God. So I pray that you draw them by your spirit. Draw them, God. Hunt them down. Chase them down, Lord God, in your relentless, loving way. Also, Father, for all of us, Lord, who do know you, God, I pray, Father, that you do something deep in our heart, God, that we don't walk out of here and, and look at people the same way, but, God, we, we have a better understanding of an internal perspective. So, Lord, change us. Change our hearts. We trust you. We love you. Have your way in our lives. In fact, would you just put your hands out and say, I surrender again to God? Lord, I surrender. I surrender to your ways. Lord, this is not about us. This is not about our comforts, our desires, us being embarrassed, our fears. This is about you. This is about Jesus. This is about people, Lord, either going to heaven or hell. Lord, so take us out of the equation, Lord. Let us not be the blockage, the barrier. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I thank you now. Do what you need to do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you.